0: Hello, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we explore career and life stories and the role that purpose plays in that with our guests. And at the end, as usual, I'll add some extra thoughts around our discussion. When we think about making an impact in the world, there are many ways to go about it. And while we often blame big businesses for the harms and some of the bad things going on, the reality is that if we've got any hope of tackling issues like climate change, business can and must be our greatest ally. And while we want government to set policy and set the guardrails in the right places business is where the resources and incentives lie to be innovative at the scale that we need so working within a big business and knowing how to pull the right levers is a pretty rare skill and that's a skill my guest has and it's something we can all learn more about so Ramana James has been leading the charge for many years now in various companies and welcome to the show Ramana
1: thank you
0: Phil it's great to have you. And I've got to start by asking you how and where your parents met. Yeah, fantastic. So
1: my my father was from Sydney, from Bankstown, so punchball boy, and my mother was from Melbourne. Um, they actually met at a, a house party of a common friend. But it was not very long after that that they travelled north, and they went to the Aquarius Festival um, up in near Nimbin, and it was sort of at the heart of or sort of beginning of the alternate movement in Australia. Um, and they absolutely loved their time at the Aquarius Festival and loved the North Coast so much. They actually ended up moving up there together and I was born up there.
0: And um, that sounds like it was the real, like, Woodstock days of, I guess, hippiedom and, and those sorts of things.
1: Absolutely. So they, um I guess, were feeling frustrated with, um, with life in big cities and, and where the world was going. And so they actually, they did the full hippie things. So they moved up to the North Coast and brought land, which I was born on and grew up on, um, out at the back of Bellingen at a place called Darkwood, which is a very, very beautiful spot. Um, but certainly when your introduction, you talked about, you know, potentially blaming or, or holding big business and the corporate world to account for, for some of the, the impacts that are happening in the world at the moment. I think my parents had that fairly strong view and they were very happy to drop out and to to live a more self-sufficient life away from um, capitalism, I think.
0: So that was 50 years ago, roughly now. I think you told me that was 1973. Um, I'm not... Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and what was that phrase? It was something tune in, drop out. What was it? I think it was something like that. Was not it turn on? Was it out. turn on? Tune in, drop yeah, out? Yeah, or... maybe. Yeah. Um, and what, I guess, briefly, what was it like growing up in that, I guess it's really lush country for anyone who doesn't know it. It's inland from Coffs Harbour and Bellingen and very lush, lots of um, rainforest. So sounds nice.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful place. Um, and it was actually quite an incredibly um, life-forming and I guess purpose-forming for me. So growing up in a place that's you're very remote, 200 acres with a river and two creeks running through it, you had to cross, uh, um, there was a creek ran across a road before you could then get to a house. So it was very, very isolated. But we were nearby to a sort of alternate hippie commune and other farmers and, and people that had bought land that were dropping out and quite alternate as well. And so my childhood was a lot of time spent fishing in the river or, you know, running up the creeks or heading out into the rainforest and so it was a lot of, freedom and independence actually and so you could go for the day like mom and dad would say see ya and you'd be back at dinner time and you will have gone and done these incredible adventures and it just built well i think for me was two things one was resilience so the ability to be on my own and to deal with challenging situations and and manage through those um and the second one probably was just a passion and care for the environment and for humanity and for social care and justice and impact, which hippies, you know, probably the ultimate in terms of their focus on social equity and social justice. And so thinking about growing up in one, a beautiful environment, but also part of a a very social sort of um, caring view has helped shape my personal purpose around looking to work with organisations to improve sustainability and drive resilience outcomes.
0: And I would bet that some of the stuff you got up to in your daily adventures there would have, you know, been things that we look back at now and say, we hope our kids don't do that.
1: That, Absolutely. I I have a few broken arms from adventures out in the bush and riding motorbikes and doing a whole range of silly things that, yeah, my parents might say today, why would they let us do that? But actually they were really important. They helped me form my, my... view of the world, my independence, my ability to tackle tough stuff and get back up and go again if it didn't work. And so there was something powerful in that, that which I've, um, I guess, taken into my life and which I've applied as I've worked now for 20 odd years in sustainability across sort of corporate Australia and, and outside Australia as well. Mm.
0: And we're going to go through a little bit of a an anthology of your career shortly. And um, before we get there, you did mention that you could have gone two ways in your career. You were attracted to a sports path, um, but ended up on a different path. So tell us about that. Yeah, I I always loved
1: playing sport um, and had dreamed about maybe doing sport professionally. When I realized maybe I wasn't quite good enough and I was getting a few too many injuries when I was young, I would sort of thought about like sports physio or something related to sport where I would be involved in it. Um, but my other passion was sustainability, the environment, caring for our planet. Um, and at that time it was, it was much more a stronger environmental focus over a social sort of community focus. Um, and in the end, it was interesting, I was interested, I remember distinctly, I was weighing up, going to university and choosing which pathway I was going to take. And I actually realised that I wanted sort of the sport and to continue to play sport, to be a part of sport, to view and watch sport. I wanted that to be my sort of personal passion and interest that I wouldn't get bored and sick of through time, that it would be something that I'd always have with me. And I felt that if I worked in it full time, as well as liked playing it and watching it and doing it, maybe it would become too much. And so, and at the same time, I had this strong belief and passion for environmental sustainability. And I ended up doing a science degree uh, majoring in environmental science, but with a particular focus on marine biology and marine co- ecology, because I had a real strong link to water and to the ocean as well. And, and I think it was in in hindsight, looking back now, it was the right choice. I've really, you know, built um, built a career that I'm very proud of, but felt like I've had huge amounts of meaning and impact at a scale that maybe I wouldn't have been able to do if I was working in sport. As much so but and i still play and love sports so i think i got the balance right in the infield although at the time i wasn't sure
0: yeah i mean it'd be pretty stressful being a professional sports person today um maybe you know back then it wasn't quite so stressful but i, I don't know how people yeah. actually survive the scrutiny of uh, of their sport um having just watched some absolutely. world cup stuff um and, and cricket last night yeah absolutely um so I interviewed uh, recently, um, one of my guests was Peter Tuwim, who you don't know, but he came from uh, Canada and uh, has been working in the gaming industry there. But he also got on the environmental path very early on. And it sounds like you got on that, as you say, on that path early on. And it was very much more about the environment, not... So it was the E rather than ESG, environmental, social and governance, very much E-focused. Give us a sense of what it was like studying in that discipline in your day versus what it might be today
1: yeah uh, look one of the interesting things is that we've progressed so far in this sort of sustainability esg world and in it being a profession now whereas when i was starting there weren't really you know sustainability managers or esg managers um so i studied a degree that gave me the ability to apply environmental impact environmental management practice and i worked as a consultant, you know, doing that. But when I was at the university, you could do a science degree, you could do a, a community social, social degree, social worker degree, or but there wasn't actually anywhere in any of the universities uh, an undergraduate of sustainability or corporate responsibility or CSR or, you know, there weren't even postgrad courses for that actually at that time. And I remember when I came out of university now as I wanted to go to work straight away and I thought well I'll start working in a consultant that will give me breadth and I'll be able to work on lots of different types of projects and activities and there were environmental consultants so you did have environmental (laughs) sustainability and then you did have stakeholder engagement and some of the social impact type work as well they were sometimes done as separate practices almost Mm-hmm. Um, and they would interact with each other, but not very linked up, which is what we're seeing more often now with the sustainability ESG lens to it. And so then as I was going through as a consultant and I started working on very big environmental impact statements, like I was doing EISs for the um, for, for a north side sewage tunnel, which is a major sewage storage tunnel underneath Sydney, which captures all the sewage overflow when there's big storms and floods. And before that, it used to all go into the harbour. So the harbour used to be filthy and dirty and then this system now captures them all. And I was able to start um, doing environmental and marine-based assessments for that work. But as I was doing projects like that, um, I started to enjoy the stakeholder engagement side of it and understanding the social impact alongside the environmental impact of major and large infrastructure. And it was that that piqued my interest around... I like to use sustainability versus ESG, and we'll maybe talk about that in a little bit um, later. But from a sustainability point of view, really, I got excited by this alignment between social, environmental and financial economic value, and how those things can come together. And I was starting to do that as part of my environmental impact work and my environmental management work. And that was for corporates as well as government and and not-for-profit as well. But I then thought, well, I'd like to actually drive this in a coordinated and connected way, with an entity or an organisation where I can own it from the beginning through to some future end state, rather than doing a little piece of it as a consultant. And interestingly, the, the, my first role in corporate, uh, in a corporate role, was a corporate responsibility manager role at Vodafone in two thousand and three. What really excited me about that was that actually it was bringing together the environmental, the social community work, and its interaction with the economics and the commercial value that was being created for Vodafone. And so, that was really um, career-changing and defining for me was being able to go into a role that was thinking at that more systemic and strategic level, and from that has a whole a whole career is shaped around then. Being more strategic, more commercial, and helping drive organisations and businesses to have greater impact.
0: So, Vodafone, I think, um, would have been a UK subsidiary of Vodafone. Is that correct? That's right. And yes. so, therefore, was their thinking a little bit more advanced at that point in time in this area?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think in Australia you had a couple of organisations that were um, on the forefront, along with Euro- European and UK organisations. So. Back in early, very early two thousands two thousand 2001, three it was sort of Westpac, IAG were probably some of the leaders in thinking about this thing in a very more in a more connected and linked up way. But you're right, Vodafone, being out of the UK um, at the time, was more progressive broadly around corporate responsibility and CSR expectations on corporate entities, and so they had had a, a sort of director of corporate responsibility who was setting a policy at a global level and then expecting each country, the local operating companies, to then follow that. And so then those companies were actually um, putting on board resources. They were recruiting people into roles to help implement that view that cascaded from a group level through to a local country and operating company level. And so, yeah, they created a corporate responsibility manager role, which at the time was one of the only ones in Australia. As I said, maybe Westpac and IAG may have had some similar things and it, it actually brought together the environmental practice and management alongside our social community impact foundation, corporate foundation work, and alongside some of those economic drivers and um, alignment to strategy type work. So you're right, it was quite early days and progressive for this type of thinking within corporations. Mm.
0: So paint a picture for the not so progressive organizations or companies at that time, what would the role of look like?
1: You would have typically been maybe an environment manager and it could have been a health and safety, H, S and E, health safety environment manager, as an example. Um, You might have also then had a community, either a corporate foundation, there were certainly corporate foundations around, or a sort of community or social manager. And they might have been in different parts of the organisation. So your environmental sustainability might have been in ops or in asset management or delivery, depending on what type of organisation you're in. And your community person was probably in marketing, you know, maybe corporate comms, but they were probably not really talking to each other much. So there were elements of it being done, but it tended to be done siloed and it wasn't being thought of at a higher order strategy level within organisations.
0: And what was something you remember from that you can talk about in terms of either something, a big achievement or a big challenge that you faced at Vodafone?
1: Yeah, um, I remember one was around social impact and the role of telecommunications in society. And there can be negative or downside impacts to that. And at the time, there were things like access to adult content. How are we restricting that for for underage people, as an example? Um, But there were actually some really amazing sort of community and social value that could be delivered through using telecommunications in innovative ways. And so I did some work at the time... We used a company um, externally as well called Positive Outcomes, who those have been around for a long time, um, did some incredible work at the time with Anthony Lupi and Louise Redman. And um, we we brought together a range of not-for-profit organisations that operated in the same area around youth and supporting youth. And we brought organisations together that had never talked to each other much, even though they were providing similar type services let alone being in a room trying to set a strategy jointly and collectively around how they could utilise mobile and telecommunications technology to drive outcomes for young people that were in their care or they were providing services and support for. So we ended up forming a joint venture coalition of sort of Vodafone plus four or five other social community organisations and um, innovative use of telecommunications and mobile to support and enable their service delivery, and that at the time um, was relatively leading. Um, it won some awards at the national level, but it was just exciting to be a part of something that was. Think of it as like a early collective impact type mm. approach, you know, where you're defining similar goals and outcomes that you, as a set of organisations, want to achieve, and then you're working together to drive those outcomes. In the case of some of these. Community organisations they saw themselves almost competitors, but actually they were able to work together really well. So I found that was really um, exciting at the time.
0: So two things to note there. Um, firstly, Michael Loopy was on this show several episodes ago, so that that's the son of Anthony Loopy. That's the son of Anthony, uh, exactly. That you mentioned, and um, what I th- what I like about that example, and I think is really illustrative, and we connected on on this topic, I guess, many years ago, was how can companies really leverage what they've got to to do good or produce positive outcomes at scale rather than let's just go and do a volunteering day in some area that doesn't really connect with our business. So at that time, as you say, connecting to strategy really was probably what was driving that. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, definitely. We we'd consciously made the decision that yes, whilst volunteering and, you know, the, the, the day out together helping a community organization as a team can add value and is still important, we felt there was going to be much more impact by using our core assets and the thing that we do as a business in a way that could scale the impact for community organisations very differently than painting a fence. And so that was very intentional. And the other thing that we were thinking, though, as well, which is a forerunner to sort of Michael Porter and Mark Kramer's shared value concept, where businesses understand social and environmental issues and address them using their core business model to drive both social and environmental impact but also measurable commercial outcome it was sort of before that paper was even written by them in 2012 but we were already looking at how would the use of innovative thinking in mobile usage and sms with young people how could that become something we would learn from and potentially support the evolution of services and products and so it's like you know that engagement in addressing social and environmental challenges using your core business can actually unlock new innovative thinking, new ideas and new opportunities which can then be scaled and driven. And so there was definitely we were doing some of that thinking is how do you make it core to business and more likely to be scaled and 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 driven further because it is.
0: So as someone working in investment management at that time, it seemed like CSR as a concept was, very multi-layered. It was quite confused because it did range from things that were just very purely philanthropic through to community investments or brand and reputation enhancing initiatives right through to what you're talking about, which is things that are more strategic. So um, in a way, when Porter and Kramer defined the shared value concept, it was almost going to the, the higher end of that scale and saying, let's just carve this out and give it a name. But it's probably fair to say the name is it hasn't really grabbed because it's I think it's a little bit confusing, just like purpose is confusing for a lot of people. So what what observations do you have about the language that we use around these concepts?
1: Yeah, the alphabet soup of our world of those that do work in this profession, um, social impact, shared value, CSR, corporate responsibility, sustainability, ESG, we could go on for probably half an hour just naming names. Um, It is an issue, I guess. It is a challenge. Um, Maybe where I think you need to land is it's a combination of the different models and the different terminologies, but to land at a place where you're driving it aligned to purpose, so it needs to be linked to the purpose of the organisation and to the strategy of the organisation. And if you then apply shared value concepts and thinking at that more commercial end of the scale, or more philanthropic philanthropic um, concepts like a a corporate foundation that's giving back. You may use a suite of those different, I'll call them tools in your toolkit, but ultimately it comes back to purpose of the organisation, strategy of the organisation, and how is the work that we're doing enabling and driving those things. And so what I like to think about is pulling on those tools in different ways when I need to, Um, But one of the things I have got interestingly a little bit frustrated about probably more recently, I've always, and and speaking to colleagues over many years, we've always said when investors take this seriously and that they're going to put pressure on their boards and, and the companies that they own, that you'll see a lot more momentum and this will become more mainstream and more embedded. And we always wished for that. And we've got that probably in the last 18 months or two two years, we've really seen that lift and elevation in investor focus. And that's there's good in that. There's an upside. My frustration has been more that they're they're using the language which is known and common to them, which is ESG, And ESG comes out of the principles for responsible investment. Um, It comes from a lens of risk management. Mm. So it comes from a lens of managing out risk so that we can get greater financial return, which I've got no issues with. But it tends to avoid the upside growth and value creation opportunity that a concept like sustainability has, right, where it says there is an economic component to this, that if we could drive economic value alongside social and environmental value, we get that beautiful link of triple bottom line. And so I'm certainly currently working at DEXUS and in that role in DEXUS, a lot of work we've been doing is on, yes, we can still use ESG as a communicating framework, environment, social governance, a way we can talk to investors. It's not the best organizing framework for delivering work in an organization. So actually it often ends up sitting on the side or on the edges, not in core business. And so we've been using the language of sustainability, but then very much saying, how does this work link into and drive our strategic objectives, and how is it going to deliver on our purpose as an organisation? And then from there, how do we then cascade that across the organisation? So, yeah, that would be my only sort of bugbear moment at the moment, Phil, but ESG has become the one that seems to rule them all. But I feel like it's, again, an important tool in the toolkit, but it shouldn't describe all this work.
0: Oh, you share your frustration, totally. And, you know, <laughs> ESG being a checklist of, say, 20 to 21 key indicators, as you say, is a risk management tool. And purpose is, in a way, probably the more material issue that the, the um, organization is focusing on. So do you want to just define purpose now? I was going to come to this later, but let's jump into it now. Just define what you mean by purpose when you talk about the purpose of Dexis or IAG or Vodafone.
1: Yeah. And there's a few different models that have looked at purpose. Um, so the values based organization, the VBO model has sort of a purpose concept, which is the why we exist. Um, you also hear Simon Senek when he talks about the model of delivering for brands, you buy what they stand for, not what they're selling you. So there's again, there's that why do we exist? Um, and then from Conscious, you know, conscious Capitalism, Raj Dasoda and Mark Mackey have talked about the profitability of purpose-led organisations. So for me, I, I do go back to why do we exist? Why do we get out of bed as a collective group of people every day to try and deliver outcomes? And that's what an organisation is trying to do. Ultimately, it's trying to deliver a strategy which has choices and then delivers outcomes. And so what do we want those outcomes to be? And if an organisation is clear on what those outcomes are, additionally to making money, then they're more likely to be far more successful. And there are many reasons why, and and you've probably covered some of these on your podcast in the past, but certainly I think that goes back to the why we exist as an organisation and what are we collectively trying to deliver and drive as a group of people in this organisation.
0: And the core thesis, I guess, is that if we're delivering things society really genuinely needs, then that's going to help us become more sustainable and and a better earning company. And it's not a it's not either or, it's not a trading off profits for purpose. It's actually purpose driving profit. Um Correct. yeah, rather than the old model that I've often referenced is the old model seem to be make as much money as we can and then give a bit back. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> which is A lot of companies are still doing and will probably get away with for a period of years but i think that window seems to be closing do you do you share that sentiment or do you think the investor market is just still too stuck in this sort of risk-based checklist that they call esg and they're not quite going to get to this purpose piece in a hurry
1: i do think there's been an acceleration and we are seeing a lot of movement in the right direction and the reason that is is because it's coming at companies from every angle So you mentioned the investor lens, which says help us understand how you're thinking about and managing ESG. But there's also this issue of an operating environment and our social licence to operate. So organisations, we're coming up to planetary boundaries where we are using far more resources than are available. And so those resources are becoming more costly. And so it could be the cost of energy to do with um, climate change and how we've set up our distribution and network systems or it could be the cost of waste and how much it's costing us to put things in the ground now or it could be the cost of not having um, highly educated employees that help us get access to the people we need to be able to drive human capital to help us deliver on the outcomes we need. So I think it's this combination of what investors are asking but actually it's just as a, a, a corporation or an entity operating in this world we're now in, it's a far more challenging one to think we can do it purely with a financial focus. Or let me rephrase that. What we've thought of as externalities, so things beyond our balance sheet are now actually becoming balance sheet issues, and so they're internalities now. So there's real cost. And so therefore, companies do need to address it. And then the final one actually is demand. So customers, and we've talked about this for a long time, that People will make different choices that uh, they'll purchase based on purpose or sustainability impact. Or, and, and often people say they will, but they don't end up doing it. There is still some of that. But we're actually seeing those numbers start to flip. And we are seeing more choices made based on ethics, based on sustainability performance. Um, and I think that's growing. And I, just as an example, at Dexus, you know, with funds management and, and property and real asset management business, and we're getting increasing inquiries and requests from customers, so tenants and occupants of the assets that we might run or that we have part of one of our funds who are wanting to know more about their sustainability impact, have set their own sort of climate goals and so therefore want to understand what their emissions are and what our emissions are running the base building. or So we're just seeing this, feel this lifting of awareness and knowledge across all the key stakeholder groups, you know, alongside government um, current government at least setting clarity around pathways for the net zero or bringing in mandatory climate disclosures or so it's just that momentum is so significant now that I can't see it ever going backwards now I think it's going to continue forward and the question will be who will be the winners who will be embra- embracing it and at the leading edge of it because I think they're going to be the ones that are most successful over the next 10 years because we're going through 10 years of unprecedented change as we address climate change and you know socioeconomic divide and all these different issues that we're trying to lean into.
0: And I'm sure you saw this. There was the paper um, or study by George Serafim and I think Sir Ronald Cohen, well, they wrote an article about it. It was the, I think, Impact Weighted Accounting Initiative that found that if you apply to market price to emissions and pollution, then 15% of the world's major companies wouldn't be profitable. It would wipe out their profits right. if they were forced to pay a market price. So yeah, yep. given the population seems to be still growing and we're more energy intensive and more materials intensive, as you're saying, those things are going to be priced at some point.
1: Yeah, and then, do you know what? That's a really good, interesting one because George Seraphin has done some other interesting research around purpose as well. Um, And about the effective delivery of purpose. So if we think about how can organisations be successful in that world that you and I were just talking about and how do they be leading edge to then, because there is opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. There is an opportunity to be incredibly successful if you do this well. And his study was looking at how successful are organisations in delivering purpose outcomes that links to commercial benefit and value And he was trying to understand what are the key drivers of successfully doing it for a commercial benefit. And what he found was that it wasn't necessarily what the very, very senior leaders thought because often the group management committee or the group executive, whatever title you use for the CEO and their reports are bought in and the board's on board. And then you might have some of your face, day-to-day customer-facing staff are right in. But ultimately, it's how well bought in the middle management layer are who are the ones that ultimately often control the purse strings that make the decisions day-to-day around where money gets spent and what asset gets upgraded or what customer gets supported in what way. And so, yeah, his his research said, actually, for organisations to be successful in being purpose-driven in a commercial way, they've got to crack the nut of how you get that middle management um, bought in and seeing it and a part of that journey as well.
0: I think what the... and and Sorry, that's really interesting. I have to get the name of that paper from you. I want to find out more about that. Um, I think what's also interesting there is these are processes that if you as a company get them right, your competitor, if they're not moving on this path, it's going to take them years to catch up. They they won't be able to just go out and buy a a widget or a piece of technology that will replicate, um, I guess, this um, more sophisticated approach. So do you... Do you see that as an advantage now where you are with, say, Dexas? Is is that what you're aiming at?
1: Yeah, it's a good insight. So this type of work from the purpose and if you link sustainability ESG practice alongside purpose and driving purpose, it actually is really hard to do because it's not a linear set one strategy or objective and then deliver it through a a simple line of execution. It's a create a culture, get people bought into a vision, look at how you cascade that across all your elements of an operating system from strategy and business planning to budgeting to leadership development. Like you you need to think of it in a really systemic way across an organisation. And so there's two things in that. One, it's really hard to do. There's not many people that are good change leaders that can work and operate in that way. And the second part is it's really hard to replicate, which is what you've just framed, is actually you think, oh, some things you're a first mover on, and the advantage can be won, but only held for maybe months or a year while someone in your, another competitor in your market jumps in and goes at it. But purpose and culture and deeply embedding sustainability and ESG, they take multiple and many years to do well and then continued focus to maintain that. And so it's not easy to replicate. So actually, I think you've got a real it's a really important point. I think companies that do this well, and certainly we're working on that at DEXAS is how we do well on that cascading purpose culture, embedding sustainable in ESG for delivery and execution. I think um they if we if we can crack that nut and do it well, it does create a significant advantage that can be hard to hard to replicate.
0: So without giving away all your trade secrets and competitive advantage, what do you think is the real key? What in that process for you?
1: Yeah, um, I've sort of alluded to some of them when I was describing that before, but you need the flag on the hill. So you need the clarity on the purpose, the why we exist.
0: Is is that a public flag um, on the hill or is that more of an in, in-house in flag on the hill?
1: No, preferably public, yeah. So our purpose currently is um, we create spaces where people thrive. And that's been a... And, and here's an example of where purpose... You will generally be enduring, but may need to shift and evolve. Um, We've recently acquired the AMP Capital Real Estate Infrastructure Businesses, which has significantly grown Dexas and its platform, but also changed the nature of some of the things we do because we now own infrastructure assets as well as traditional real estate assets. And so we're actually in the middle of a review and looking at what our new purpose will be, Phil. And actually, it's a really exciting time to be a part of that process and to be working with our people and culture team, with our brand and comms teams, with our operating teams across the business on how we think about that new purpose that we're working on, but how then sustainability ESG strategy and programs can be a critical part of delivering on that purpose alongside our organisational strategy and complementing our organisational strategy. So I think... um, Where I've seen it done well is that they, and this is what we're working at at is you get clear on the flag on the hill, so why we exist. You then look at how do you embed that across the operating system of your organisation. From the strategy you set and the strategic choices you might make in your decision-making to how that cascades into business plans, functional plans, in our case, asset plans and budgets, but how it's also a part of leadership development of the values, the behaviours, the mindsets of the organisation, of how it's cascaded into broader employee population in terms of the day-to-day conversations, the things we won't walk past. So you do need to really think of it in that embedded and systemic way, and I think that's when it's done successfully is when that is applied and then when it's um, continued... You have to continue focus on it because it's not something you build it and after a year you go right, we're done we can now step back it actually requires you to continually be applying it and reintroducing it and you know so so i think it's also repetition and persistence is really critical as well phil
0: and that's a great description i think it's really valuable and it's like you the purpose is building the culture and, and it's helping to i guess align people around the common goal that you're aiming for What I've noticed is a lot of companies today are really good at making or reviewing their purpose statements, but the implementation of it doesn't seem to go very far. Any comments on that?
1: Yeah. um, I think sometimes people use culture eats strategy for breakfast, but I think you could apply that same saying to delivery and sort of implementation versus strategy. So it's great to have a, a really good strategy Ultimately, how successful is is determined by how well it's implemented. And the implementation side of it probably is the more de- a stronger determinant of the overall success. And I think that's the same with purpose. It is definitely uh, how you embed and implement and how you apply the right level of focus and effort to it. You do ultimately want it to become self, self-perpetuating or self-serving. You want it to be able to actually become organic and grow But it's still going to always need some fertiliser and to be supported and to be nurtured and to be nudged and pushed. And so I think organisations that think they've got an 18-month program delivery timeline and at the end of that think they're only going to be able to, to go to a BAU status where it doesn't require any more focus, that won't work. So, yes, implementation and execution are critical for it to be successful.
0: Yeah, I think it's like any form of collaboration. You've got to constantly reinvest in maintaining that collaborative network. Otherwise, it yeah. just dies. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to come back to Dexas and, and a couple of elements about just purpose in general shortly. But fill me in. In between there, you had roles at Stockland and then IAG, the insurance company. What what stood out to you from those two experiences?
1: Yeah, Um I might actually, it was I was interested because when I was framing up my history, my background, talking about where I grew up and my parents, uh, when I first said that I was going to be going from being an environmental consultant or a sort of sustainability consultant to work in a big business, there was a bit of, are you selling yourself out? Right. Um, is that really what you want to do, considering, you know, where you've grown up? and Yeah, the, the hippies, values the values the hippies, hippies might have been with,
0: unhappy with you.
1: The hippies were unhappy with me. And I've shared this story with people at different times, but there was that, are you really going to do that? And I think when I always said it was Vodafone, maybe Vodafone is less evil in the eyes of a hippie. Um, So telecommunications is adding some value and it's not a major pollutant. Um, When I went to property, there was, at Stockland, there was still question marks. We're starting to get into areas that are having a bigger, bigger impact on sort of environment and people. But I think they saw the value I was going to bring. Um, to that and then I think it was a bigger question when I went to insurance because that was financial services and not really in their eyes as tangible a product and so it's been interesting working with my parents as I've gone through my career and progressed into different industries as we have conversations about that Um, but I just share what what has driven me to each of those organizations and the why I felt okay with it actually is because I've chosen organizations that have had a purpose that have had values and that have been a cultural fit for me. So, you know, my personal purpose around sort of energetically working with businesses and communities to improve sustainability and resilience. For me, that can only work if I know I'm going to be able to drive change and have impact in the organisations that I'm a part of. And so, selecting those organisations has been important for me in my career. And Both Stockland and then IAG were strong purpose and values-driven organisations and had strong cultures with people that actually really care about the communities and the customers that we were a part of and that we served. And that's the same in here at Dexas where I am now as well. But that was really important for me. Um, Transitioning into property, it felt exciting to be in stuff that was real, like real tangible assets that had a more direct, obvious impact, where people live, where they work, you know, where they shop. Those things are really physical and tangible. So I really enjoyed that work and and the transition into that work from telecommunications. Um, It's interesting, I started to introduce the shared value concept that I briefly talked about before when I was at Stockland because I'd read the Harvard Business School article from uh, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer, and I'd introduced some of the concepts to our board at the time. And to that piece you talked about on the different spectrums of this work, from more philanthropy to maybe the more bleeding commercial edge of shared value type thinking, certainly that resonated, the language of it resonated really well with boards at that time. This was back in 2009, 2010, or sorry, 2012, just post the article coming out in 2011. Um, and I actually, we started to disclose and report on some of that, you know, annual disclosures at Stockland. And we're talking through some of the work we're doing around understanding things like livability or um, how driving improvements in assets actually uplifts value and and commercial returns for organisations and um, use some of that shared value language. And it was interestingly enough, at the time, back at IAG, their chief strategy officer and their group general manager of strategy were looking to reset the IAG strategy with a new purpose. Um, which is still there now we make your world a safer place and um, introduced the shared value sustainability as a core strategic objective within that purpose to try and drive the outcome and so I actually got recruited and headhunted because of some of that work that we were doing at Stockland that had that link to commercial value and to strategy and purpose and was brought into the strategy team so I came out of Stockland in you know, a sustainability team and recruited into a strategy team and was building and setting it at a strategic level and then working through how do we then go to the cascading delivery and embedding side of this as well. And so that was really exciting for me because a lot of my career I've really focused on str- being strategic, on thinking about how sustainability work delivers strategy objectives and how, as I've mentioned you know quite a few times, but how it can be commercial. And the reason for that is because I believe it will drive greater investment by those companies to do more and to have bigger impact as well. So so that was an interesting part of my career was that sitting in strategy, building out my strategic capability and the ability to set strategy. Um, Yeah. And then loved my time working in general insurance where people actually love helping customers get back on their feet when it's the toughest time possible. And if you think about climate change and the impacts of extreme weather events on, storms, floods, bushfires on people's homes, on their cars, then it was a really um, important place to be working. And I I learned a lot from being in there as well.
0: I think um, they're certainly being swamped by climate change as as the key risk for that business and key issue right now. Um, Just coming back to Stockland for a moment, uh, one of the examples I remember reading about was, I think you mentioned the Livability Index. and. So the idea, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, that let's say you're developing a new residential area, you might drop in some extra social infrastructure or assets. Um, I don't know if it's schools or maybe helping to bring in daycare centers uh, because the, your customer would see a lot of value in those assets and you'd potentially get a, a commercial return as well. Is Have I got it right there? Is, is that an example of, of how you make that link?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll call out to Siobhan Toohill, uh, also a sustainability professional who was kicked off that livability work in Stockland. Um, I was privileged enough to continue that on um, after she departed, and I was leading the sustainability team there. And yeah, absolutely. So it was, yeah, understanding the drivers of livability and how the way we design master plan communities can lift and elevate those and a more desirable place. And that this applies to a master plan community, but it applies now to office assets, or to retail, or to industrial assets. But you know, a more desirable place is going to be a place that customers want to be a part of, that they're going to be willing to buy or rent, and they're going to be willing to pay more money in those places. And in fact, we've seen in the this current commercial downturn, as we've had the challenges with rising interest rates um, and the cost of living challenges that. There's been an impact on commercial property and commercial property valuations. And what's played out is, and this is a positive for DEXIS, where we hold more A-grade and premium assets that have higher levels of sustainability and ESG performance, is that they're the places that have held up from a vacancy rate point of view. So they're the places that um, you know tenants are tending to hold on to or want to move into because they want to utilize those spaces that are better designed, better located to um, amenity. Uh, And therefore, we're seeing a flight to premium, which we've talked about a lot in sustainability, that sustainability can be synonymous with or equal premium and value that is sought after by customers. And we're definitely seeing that at the moment. And, yeah, so that livability was a great example of uh, using data and insights and, you know, customer engagements to evidence the value that you can create through focusing on sustainability and ESG as part of your product offerings.
0: Which is a lovely... I guess, segue into another pet topic, which is I think around timeframes. So when we go into this world of sustainability and making investments that are generally longer term in nature, if you're not getting an immediate commercial return, then as a, say, just a historical traditional shareholder, you might be saying to the company, your your earnings suck, your profits aren't high enough. You're going to have that tension between those investments you're making that will pay off in the future, but wearing some of that pain today. So- how do you deal with that dynamic?
1: Yeah, you're dealing with that from an investor or capital provider level, and then you're dealing with it through boards to management committees, you know through all levels of an organization. Every day you're making choices on where you spend money, on what activities you undertake, on where you try to um, find cost saving, where you try and add value. If you think about it, there's um, a couple of ways you compete in the market, whichever industry you're in. One of them is around price. So we go for getting something to market as quick as we can at low cost, and we try and win on cost. So it's the lowest price goes in at price. And another one is that you win on value, where you say, we're going to actually charge a premium. There's going to be more cost, but it's because there's additional value that a customer is going to be willing to pay for. And I think we're seeing increasingly customers who can afford to, let's be honest, there's people that can't afford to make these types of choices, and that's a challenging thing. But many customers will increasingly make choices on value that have sustainability or ESG you know, components within them. Um, and I think that's the same when you think about decision making at different levels in an organization. What are we willing to go for here? Is it purely cost out, lowest cost model, or is it, and that gives us a, A sweet return for the next 12 months or do we think we want to add value to this asset or to this product that's going to last over multiple years and give us greater return in the long run Um, i think investors are getting comfortable with looking well particularly larger superannuation and institutional investors you know they're looking on long-term horizons. so i think the investor group it's getting easier to have those sort of conversations and then within organizations i think if you're really clear on strategy So what's important, why it's important, how it's going to deliver against the strategy and the purpose of the organisation. And then you build in commercial measurement, like build the ability to quantitatively measure things. You will be able to put forward a business case that is strong. And that case might be a like-for-like return on investment, or it might be a slightly um, changed return rate on that investment through time or but I think that used to be really hard. I think it's still challenging, particularly in a tough commercial environment, but I feel like increasingly um, financial managers, revenue managers, they're up for those conversations and thinking about it on a longer term horizon.
0: Yeah, that's great Great to hear. And I imagine there's a level of trust there that you need your investors to be trusting you that you'll be able to deliver on that. And that's that's currency as well. So what? Absolutely. You, so I want to come to your current role and I'll preface this with a, a stat I read today. So you're chief sustainability officer at Texas. Um, is that right? Is that your title? The title is head of
1: sustainability. Oh, there you go. Head of sustainability. I'll take the CSO title for
0: sure. <laughs> no, it's head of sustainability. <laughs> okay. So near enough, but uh, I was looking at Hydric and the Struggles um, there in the recruitment game. Um, they put out some data saying 28% of chief sustainability officer appointments are at the executive level today up from 9% in 2016. So there's certainly a rising acceptance of the importance and influence of that role. And what I would love you to talk to, which you've mentioned to me offline before as well is how do you create that influence across the organization? Because you've mentioned earlier, you've got to work across all different functions within your organization, sometimes without direct authority. So how, how do you take on that task?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Oh, actually, I'll, firstly, maybe some context. You're right that more roles are more senior and that they're often at that sort of executive manager, sort of head of, you know, CSO type level. That's either reporting to a CEO or reporting to a direct report of the CEO. That's increasingly the case. Um, in doing that... there there hasn't necessarily been the um, parallel and equivalent development of the capability of sustainability leads. So I think where you know, organisations are seeing it, they're understanding it needs to be more strategic and commercial, they're creating these roles, and then people are being pushed into or parachuted into them who maybe just don't have the experience and haven't built the leadership tools and capability to necessarily operate effectively at that executive level. And so I think there is a bit of a gap and. Certainly, um, when I'm speaking to recruiters as well, as a whole, there needs to be a maturing in the senior leadership capability and the executive capability of our sustainability professionals, if that makes sense. Um, So then if I define what's different operating at that level, um, which maybe sometimes is challenging for sustainability professionals, is that it is about uh, looking at strategy and setting sort of the, the, I used the term flag on the hill before, but setting that vision. But it's not about coming up with that yourself because if you come up with that yourself, then others in the organisation aren't going to be bought into it and they're not going to necessarily trade off or see it as core to their role. So you need to be able to set a flag on the hill or a vision but co-create that with people from across the organisation. We've just been going through a process at Dexis where we're engaging with all of our senior leaders from the reports to our CEO, to all of the head of roles, and then people across functional areas at different levels within the organization to help set and define what that ambition should be. You know, What is our aspiration going to be? And then to collectively work on what the priority areas within that should be, because we can't do everything. So effective strategy delivery is choices and narrowing choices so that you effectively deliver those Sustainable people aren't always great at doing that. We're doing some work on trying to narrow down, prioritise. Then you've got to work on ensuring that it's clear on who's going to be accountable for delivering which components of this strategy that are going to deliver against those priority areas and that aspiration. And you've got to have the ability to work in an influencing sort of change leadership role with various stakeholders that can be sometimes bought in but other times maybe don't see the value. So you've got to be able to, change your communication style, position things in different ways for different people to get engagement and then ownership. And ultimately, you want them to be bought in so it's a collective ownership, not just something that they think they have to do because you've set some flag on the hill for them. Um, And so I think all, all of that, that's really difficult to do well. And I think that's where... The really good sustainability leaders, those people that are being a CSO or, you know, head of and doing that really well, are the ones that can do that and that are not really actually experts in energy or climate or waste or social impact or Indigenous engagement. It's not what they need to be experts at strategy, change, influencing and driving through others, and then ultimately going back to the conversation we had before about delivery and execution being determinant of success or not, they've also got to be really good at embedding it into business planning, planning processes, budgeting, clearly allocating, okay, you've got this role and you're going to have this money to be able to deliver it and now you need to do that. And the sustainability team might help you with elements of that or provide you with tools, but ultimately it's rests with you. And so I think that's the bit that it's that interesting combination of project management, delivery, execution, but strategic visionary influencing and change leadership as well.
0: I'm actually seeing a whole lot of Venn diagrams here, or one big Venn diagram where you've yes. got many, many circles and trying to find that intersection. So in the intro, I I think I, I did make um, the the statement that it's a skill that I think is quite rare, and, and I, I imagine there's not too many of you in the market there so that's uh well it's good from your perspective
1: yes well it's good if people see that i am able to operate that way phil and i maybe i'm not sure if i can but <laughs> i hope so oh, i hope that's why i'm getting you know in the roles that i'm in
0: we'll, we'll take that as read but something else you said to me uh, a couple of weeks ago was it's one thing to have a passion for a cause and it's another thing to turn the corporate machinery in the right direction
1: yeah absolutely which is where sometimes sustainability. Practitioners, professionals um, get caught up because they're bought into the passion, the vision, and they're so strongly bought into that, that they're not willing to give some of that up to drive the outcome they need with an organisation. And so it's an interesting balance of maintaining passion and purpose but realizing that to drive an organization towards those outcomes, you might need to be quite adaptive and operate in a way that you wouldn't have normally thought you would to drive that thing that you're interested in.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's one thing to say something's wrong, something's bad, but it's another thing to be able to turn everyone around and, and fix it and do it. Do it yeah. The right way. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, we could probably talk forever, but we're sort of hitting time, unfortunately. Um, I'm I'm going to close out with three questions. You've alluded, I think, to the answer of the first one already, but let's restate it. The first one is, and I ask this of of all my guests, what really contributes to your sense of purpose?
1: Yeah, so I I love when I'm working with others to drive change and when that's sustainability aligned. So that's the thing that really gets me out of bed is if if I'm helping an organisation shift and change to be more sustainable and more resilient i get meaning out of that and i feel reward and satisfaction um and so yeah that's definitely my 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 sense of purpose is not individual it's it's sort of collective it's when we're as a group driving that change that i'm passionate about
0: yeah wonderful question two you've ticked off number one very very easily there well done um what are you looking forward to from here
1: Well, it's interesting because we're going into what I think is a very challenging decade, um, and we've briefly touched on that during the conversation. Um, That's scary. Actually, if you flip that, that's also really exciting in that there will need to be incredible innovation, incredible solutions. There'll need to be collective engagement in solving these really wicked and challenging problems. And I actually look forward to being a part of that like I, whatever role that is and hopefully I can play some small role as part of Dexas, you know, as part of the broader property industry, as part of broader corporate Australia. But yeah, I do, I do, I'm I've, I've sort of looking forward to the challenge of it, even though it scares the hell out of me.
0: Okay. So I'll put you down as prime minister, uh, prime minister candidate for, uh, you know, Oh no, not politics. <laughs> that's the, that's definitely the
1: one place I'm not going.
0: Okay. Final question. Um, and I don't know what your advice would be. What advice would you give your younger self about going forward in your career? Let's say you were back at that stage of, of starting university. What would have been good advice back then?
1: Um, I think maybe sweat only the very big things. Like I think a lot of us when we start our careers, everything feels really important and big, and small decisions that go, you know, that don't work out can feel really tough. So I've been a harsh judge of myself at times. I think sometimes that's constructive and it's helped me grow and develop, but at times it's probably been harsher on myself than I should have done in the context of what were small little things compared to the bigger picture. So I think it would be, yeah, don't sweat the little things and, you know, just really focus on the big stuff that you can make a really big difference to that's in your sphere of influence that you can drive and, um, I think I've gotten better at that as I've progressed further in my career. But certainly when I first started, um, I felt it. You know, I felt that a lot. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's great advice, I think. So, um, I understand. I'll put the link to Dexis in the show notes because you I understand you're going through uh, that purpose statement revamp. So, um, we won't say what it is because I'm sure it's not public yet. So, we'll, people can follow that. And uh, I might put a link to your LinkedIn profile in there as well. But um, yeah, it's been a really good chat, Romana, because I think we've dived into the corporate machinery and that's hard to do. And I, and I think there's not enough discussion about it. So I thank you for coming on the show.
1: It's a pleasure, Phil. Thank you. It's always great to chat with you and I really appreciate the time. So thank you.
0: Well, I did say to Romana after we finished that recording, I said, I felt like this was a masterclass in business purpose and sustainability and I stand by that now I think it was a fantastic interview and there's so much to bring out of that three things that I'll highlight of course there were probably many more but number one I was interested in the fact that his journey uh, evolved because he was consulting originally and felt like he was just working on smaller parts of bigger puzzles on on many projects so he went into work for corporates, um, so he could see the whole picture and I guess make a, felt like he made a bigger impact in doing that and got more enjoyment out of it. And I think it's also interesting that sustainability was very much an environmentally themed concept uh, when he started his journey, whereas today we tend to think of sustainability as, as an amalgamation of social, environmental, and economic factors coming together. The second observation is, that purpose really is core to business in leading companies. And Ramana made the point that it is really hard work, but the benefits you get uh, flow for years, if you get it right, you get enormous competitive advantage if you can embed purpose in the core of your business and do it well. And look, seriously, is there any problem with profits and rewards flowing to companies that are delivering the biggest societal benefits? Um, I'm all on board with that. And if you're really interested in this topic, you might wanna check out my new podcast, which is called the Business Purpose Trends Podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to that because in weekly episodes of sort of five to 10 minutes, we cover some, as the title says, business purpose trends topics. And that's the type of conversation we have there. Uh, Point number three is it takes a lot of skill to be able to move the corporate machinery. And that is because it's a whole of business thing. And we talked about the idea of you've really got to throw off your idealistic desires here because you can be idealistic, but you're not going to be able to bring other people on the journey or the organisation on the journey if you hold to a a very idealistic point of view. So it's all about practicality and being able to influence others within the organisation when you often don't have direct power in that process. So these are very complex coordination, planning and collaboration processes And I really take my hat off to people like Romano who are doing this well. You'll find relevant links in the show notes as well as my contact details should you wish to get in touch. And as I said, you'll find the link to the Business Purpose Trends podcast if you want to check that out. I'm Phil Preston and see you next time for another episode of The Purpose Edge.